the impact of this school closure, this remote learning that we defaulted to, is going to be impacting for years to come if we don't do something to close the gap. How do we do that? Resilience is the answer to it. But I think a big mistake that parents think is there's only a set window. It's too late. Or it started when he was three. It's not too late for any of us or the entire counseling industry would go out of business. Megan Trainer. Listen, let me tell you a little about her before we start talking to her. She first made history with her Diamond Certified Smash single, All About That Bass. And the award-winning singer-songwriter has garnered a Grammy Award and achieved eight multi-platinum singles and two platinum albums, sold out three world tours, penned multi-platinum hits for peers across pop and country, and received countless industry awards and nominations. Expanding her influence on pop culture, she starred on Fox's hit series The Four, Battle for Stardom, and is currently on the superstar coaching panel of ITV's The Voice UK alongside Sir Tom Jones, Will I Am, and Ollie Moores. Megan, how are you? Hi. How's that for an intro? That was incredible. That was my dreams. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if if you're all listening out there and you don't know, I'm the biggest Dr. Phil fan in the world. So this is um this was like my birthday um dreams and a bucket list for me just to get to talk to you for an hour is pretty sick. And um hearing you say all those words like my heart just stopped for a minute and now it's back. <laughs> Listen, think about that. You've done a lot of stuff. It's crazy how you can like forget all that too or forget a lot of it. And like I mean here, this is like it's crazy because like you're my favorite person ever and they're like what would you ask dr phil when you get to talk to him and i'm like the only thing i could think of is like hey how do i be not so critical of myself <laughs> like how like when you read all that stuff i just like forget it all and i go back to like no you're not good enough be better and work on yourself every single day you've been pretty transparent about your feelings anxiety depression the doubts that we started talking about in the beginning. Have people talked to you about that? Have your fans yeah. and stuff like that? Because oh, that yeah. seems to me to be hugely inspirational. Because yeah. people look at you and say, if she can talk about this, deal with this and overcome it, then I can. Yeah. Um, I I just like was uneducated about all of it. and And my parents were too. Like when I heard anxiety, I thought people would just be stressed out and I, I just didn't know what it could actually physically do to your body. And after the vocal surgeries and and uh, I remember it was a month after my vocal surgery, they scheduled an Ellen performance. And I was like, guys, not going to make it. And they're like, we'll be OK. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. And I was so scared uh, that in my vocal like training getting back into it I had days to get ready I was bawling my eyes out I think it started then and I I started getting the physical um feelings where you feel like you want to run to the bathroom or your back is lit by a flame or you have a fever and your temperature's fine like you know those physical things where you're like I'm I'm it's crippling like I can't I can't get through work today because my body's dying on me and I don't know what's going on. So one night I just, I kept being like, there's something wrong with me, but I'll figure it out. And one night I, after dinner, I thought I was having an allergic reaction and I went to the emergency room and was like, my throat's closing. Panic attack. And they were like, okay, so we've checked you out and this is what we call a panic attack. And I was like, no, 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 no. If you just look right <laughs> yeah, just there, look in here. It's closing, and the sweet guy was so nice to me. felt so bad because he knew I was just clueless. Um, and then they tried. My brother was the only person that had panic attacks in my family that talked to me about it. He was like, oh, go to the emergency room. You'll be fine. I've had this. Just don't let them give you Xanax. And I was like, okay. And <laughs> so I went there and was like, uh, I don't want Xanax. I want the lightest form of anything you can do to help me. And um, they did. They gave me some very light, I don't know what it was but it worked and it was fine. And 
After that, I went to every doctor you could think of except you. I could have probably used you. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> I went to every doctor and was like, please fix me. And a lot of them promised they would and they couldn't. And then I finally met a psychologist and he said, your chemicals are like this and we got to bring you back to here. And it made me feel so much better. And so I'm like, oh, I'm not going crazy. Like I'm not schizophrenic because things would start moving. I had like body dissociation or whatever it's called. Yeah, you get that anxious. People don't realize anxiety is not just a psychological phenomenon. There's a neurological component to it as well. Yeah. And the neurotransmitters in your brain get disrupted. And it's like being on a racetrack with no exit ramp. It, yeah. It's just going and going and going and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. He said stuff that finally made sense. He was like, you, there's a fire alarm in your head. And it's just going off for, like, no reason. Like, that was, like, the best thing he could have ever said to me. And I was like, yes, that's how I feel. He's like, you know when there's, like, actual danger in front of you and that's how intense it gets? Your body's telling you that's happening all day long when it's not. And I was yeah. like, cool, fix it. What do we do? <laughs> well, yeah. you've got a recorder in your brain called the amygdala. That's what it is. Yeah. And He's so smart. So it records this, and then whenever you hit that, play button something will trigger it and it's right there my back's on fire <laughs> yeah <laughs> why is your back on fire i don't know i don't know i used to like not be able to talk about it because it would bring it back yeah but i like i feel like i beat it and i accomplished so much and got back i got back into my soul it's like my soul left for a minute and now it's back in my body yeah see people don't realize we have one arousal system it's the same system if you're excited at a ball game yeah. or if you hear somebody behind you in a dark alley mm -hmm. or you're all excited at your wedding. We have one arousal system. It's the same thing, same chemical, same wow. arousal. It's just how you label it. Uh. It's exactly the same. If you're at the football game and they score in the last second, you're, hey, yeah. that's exactly the same experience you have when you have a panic attack. You just labeled it differently. That's crazy. Isn't that Mom. something? That's crazy. And like what really like was tough going through it was um, like it, the industry people understood me, like my lawyer understood me and my management, but um, my best friends, my family, like my mom didn't know what was happening. She hadn't, like, she hadn't gone, it felt like for me a mental breakdown. Like, and I guess she's never gone through that. She's always full of anxiety, but she's never had these moments. And when I would text her, like, I'm going to the emergency room because I can't breathe again tonight, she'd be like, no, nah, come here, I'll rub your head. And I was like, no, I need an oxygen tank or I will die. Like, this is it for me. And finally, um, who's our guy who saved my life? Carson Daly? Carson Daly did a video randomly on the Today Show speaking about how he feels when he had a panic attack, and he explained it to the T perfectly. And I texted it to my mom, and I was like, this is what I'm going through. And she was like, oh. And then she was like bawling and said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And then I realized like, oh, this is what my fans have been talking about for years. And this is what they mean of like, I can't, I can't go to school, I'm miserable. And when parents come up to me and say, my kid was so suicidal until your song came out. And I was like, my three minute song can fix this, whatever's happening to me. I was like, well, let's write some more. Yeah, that's Easy. what I'm saying. It's inspirational because people think they're alone. They yeah. think they're the only I felt, one I felt like that. I was the only one and I would be in a, like, I thought I was like losing my mind. And you know, there's a first link in every chain. And what I always tell people is, if you can identify, there is a first thing that signals your anxiety or panic attack. It might be flushed cheeks. It might be heat in your back. It might mm -hmm. be a sweaty palm. It might be a dry mouth. Something. There's some first signal. And if you can figure out what it is, then it can become a cue for coping or a cue for yeah. deterioration into panic. But if you have a coping sequence and you hit that, you go, bang, I know what I have to do. I need to do this and this and this yeah. and this. The fire never gets started. You put it out while it's just a little flicker and it doesn't ever happen to you. That's what I've been doing. Like, that's what I figured out and was like, oh, beat it. Got it. Yeah. I feel so much better. And my therapist was like, you should treat yourself. You're killing it. You look great. And I was like, I know. And um, yeah. But it's like my triggers are if I don't get enough sleep. If yeah. I 
if I don't get enough sleep, my body confuses it with anxiety. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're just exhausted. Or I know if like if they give me the schedule of what's coming up, that was my first panic attack ever. They read me my schedule for the week. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. So I, I tell my mom because she's my assistant. I'm like, I don't want to talk about work from here on to nighttime. Like, I want to be done for the day. And they're really good about taking care of me like that. And the whole thing is you have to finish that sequence by rewarding yourself and saying, that just came on. I did that. Yes. I nailed that. You got to give yourself That's credit. You got to say it out loud. Yeah. I feel like we don't get to talk about that like as much, you know? No. Everyone's talking about how spooky and scary it is and how everyone's going through it. Even like children are going through it. But like, I don't know. Like in the moment I was like, there's a another person in here and they're torturing me and I've done nothing wrong and I don't know why this is happening. But when you can take control again, you're like, that's really cool. And I'm proud of myself for getting through that. Yeah, you got to reward yourself. You repeat behaviors that get rewarded and you don't repeat behaviors that don't get rewarded. It's just that simple. How do you reward yourself? Um, I get a massage or I get my nails done or yeah. I do like today I was feeling overwhelmed about, um, I'm going to New York to do a bunch of promo and it's going to be like really crazy days. And my husband, he just went through some random weird stuff that doesn't make sense. And it was kind of lame. It's not the worst thing, but it's kind of lame. And he was feeling down. And I noticed I had like 40 minutes before I was going to drive here. And I said, babe, let's escape. Let's go to lunch together. And he took me out to lunch and we went to our favorite restaurant and we just like had a moment together. And he's like, wow, I don't know what it is, but I feel so much better. And it was like we got to escape our world of chaos for a minute and just be together and eat our favorite food. So that felt nice. Let me ask you about working on it. Okay. In the verse, you say, never been asked to dance because I've never been the pretty one. Never like compliments because it's always been so hard to believe in them. You say I'm beautiful and I say you're full of it. Nothing personal. I'm still not used to this. Isn't that crazy? Bars. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that when you hear it back? So sad. Um, but so real. Like I, I picture... Each moment, like, um, never been asked to dance. So w when we were growing up, we're on this little island and we had school dances and I was like petrified to dance in front of people, but I've always wanted to be a dancer, you know, it's like been the fire in me and I danced in front of my family, but it was like in front of my peers, my classmates, I was terrified. And this one kid came up to me and he asked me to dance. And he wasn't the coolest kid in school, but I was like, oh, my God, he wants to dance with me. OK. And then after we danced, he ran over to his friends and they were all laughing and they gave him a dollar. And I went up to him and I was like, what's this? And um, oh, I forgot to mention when he came up to me, he said, my grandma passed away. Will you dance with me? And I was like, Jesus. OK. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he got a dollar and they they made a bet of like, a, um, I bet you can't get a dance with anyone. So I was like, I felt like bait. And I was like, oh, man, I thought that moment was like really sweet and special. And it was just like stupid boys. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I I've hated school dances ever since. And if I go, I, I went with my girlfriends and we would just like dance alone and be like, forget everyone else here. And, and then um, when my husband would give me compliments, even when I felt like my ugliest, like I know like I'm grungy looking in this moment, he's like, God, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen ever. And I'm like, what are you seeing? Like, I wish I could see with those goggles. Like, what are you looking at? And like, he's truly like, you know how you see, say people's reality is their reality or whatever? That's perception like, is reality. Perception is reality. He's like, I'm the prettiest girl in his world. And I'm like, that's so cool. I wish I saw that. <laughs> and I work on it and he'll stand in the mirror with me and be like, look it, look how beautiful you are. And I wanted to put it in a song. They say love sees not with the eyes. Oh. <laughs> that's that's cute. Yeah. It's true. I think it's what it is. It's like the kid worships me, and I worship him just as much. 
but it's, I've never felt like that. No one's ever looked at me like that. Then I was like, we should get married. <laughs> you better keep this one. Better keep this one around. <laughs> yeah. He's a good one. He's great. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Nikki Glaser, one of the funniest female voices in comedy today. You've probably seen her because she's been hitting the clubs for over a decade across the country. She's the host of three hit podcasts. She has been honing her shockingly honest, no holes barred style of comedy. It takes a different breed of cat to do what you do. <laughs> yes, it does. I do believe that all comedians, and I don't know, I would like to hear your take on this. It comes from a place, at least for me, of not feeling loved. And so I need to perform and hear back constantly validation like we like you ha 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 ha. it's not like i play a song for four minutes and then applause at the end it's i need laughs and validation every five seconds um and so i think it comes it came from a place for me at least of of just wanting to be seen wanting to be loved from strangers anywhere i could get it and uh thank god for that though thank god for my low self-esteem as a as a child well <laughs> it made let's me talk about out. that because <laughs> there were a lot of reasons that I was really excited about doing this. And one is, I think you're a huge talent, and I think you do oh, a great you. job on stage. But what I love about you is you have no filter. <laughs> I kid you not, guys. What you see with Nikki is what you get. She has no edit button and <sighs> is willing to be totally authentic. It's not like, hey, I miss glamorous Hollywood. You have a willingness to be completely shockingly honest mm -hmm. about everything. But at the same time, you say, I'm like really insecure and need feedback every five seconds, but yet you have the courage to be totally, completely honest. To me, that's yeah. a contradiction. Well, I think now I... I, I, I do have self-esteem now. I had to hit some really low lows during the pandemic that brought me to a realization that I was kind of dependent on stand-up and that validation every night to, to be complete, to, to not have to be alone with my thoughts, to feel loved, to feel worthy. And then when it was taken from me, I had to actually kind of look at stuff and do some work. And so now I feel that I'm compelled to go on stage now to, to share, to make people laugh, to make people feel less alone. Like my compulsion for doing it is different than when I started. But I do believe that I felt as a child so just innately gross, wrong. Uh, you know, why was I even born? There's nothing special about me. I just I, I really hated myself. And I don't know why, but I just did. And I think when I found stand up, I found something that really I could talk about those dark feelings and make make something of them. You know, it was just too dark. How did you go from feeling like, okay, I don't mm -hmm. fit anywhere. I don't have a peer group. I don't fit in. I'm not what I want to be to having the courage to get in front of an audience and tell your first joke, your first set, your first <laughs> two minutes. Yeah. Well, to tell you the truth, I was um, about to die of anorexia. I had just, uh, you know, committed to like, kind of committing suicide in a really slow way that just took over my life. And I was at school and I was in college. I had convinced my parents I was well enough to leave and go off. And I was just going to die because I didn't know what to do. I had no, I, I had, 
I had no willingness to be open to my life uh, to eating again because I just didn't see what I was going to live for. I always wanted to be an actress. I wasn't good at acting. I didn't get into theater school. I, all the things I wanted to be didn't happen for me. I got really good at, at dieting, and which turned into something that I could not control any longer. And my life was hell, you know, like starving all day and not knowing how to stop everyone being mad at me. But when I went to college, I was so scary looking. I, I looked so terribly thin and everyone was so worried about me I had to create a person I had to just like make myself larger than life so that I could make friends I had to I was so I didn't want anyone to be worried about me anymore but I couldn't gain weight so I'd wear baggy clothes and I was just funny I just laid into like look over here not here and then I started hearing you should be a comedian and I was just desperate for anything so I just I googled female comedian I saw saw some like comedians that I just I just thought, oh, my God, they're just being so honest. And I think my problem was like I wasn't I'd never been able to be really honest about the stuff I struggled with. And I thought maybe this is an outlet. And then I ended up being pretty good at it. And it was the first thing that I was like, oh, I have a knack for this. And so the first time I went on stage, I just made a decision. I got to figure out this eating disorder because I finally have something I I want to live for. And so I started, you know, I just sought treatment. And then, you know, I got. I got over anorexia, but then it just turned into a, a m- many other eating disorders that were more manageable and less noticeable over the course of 20 years. <laughs> so you, know. you just had symptom substitution. You just switched them for other things. Oh, yeah. That's all I do, Dr. Phil. I, I, you know, I quit drinking 10 years ago. Then I smoked pot. Then I quit smoking pot. Then I start getting in the food. I was bulimic. I've been, you know, intermittent fasting, which I call adult anorexia. I, I've, I've tried everything. And then I think when the pandemic hit, that's when I was like... You got you, you and then workaholism like I just was doing podcasts and sets every single night like I never was home alone I was never alone and when the comedy clubs were taken from me in March 2020 I just I got desperate and that's when I really sought out recovery for uh my suicidal thoughts my um overall depression and and really my my eating disorder that I had turned into this like very manageable thing that I talked about openly, but really didn't get that honest about. And since then the recovery of that has opened up this new honesty for me. Cause I think that I always thought I was a very honest person sharing about my sex life. I mean, that's kind of what I'm known for is like, Oh my God, she just talks so openly about her sex life. I, I don't know. I think that's a rebellion because my parents didn't talk about sex. So that's me going, well, I'm going to get on stage and talk about it. And I was always very scared of sex. I was, I didn't, I talk about sex all the time in my act, but I didn't lose my virginity till I was 21. I was, I didn't have a boyfriend till I was 24. And then like, didn't have a boyfriend that didn't have another girlfriend till I was 29. I mean, these are, I, I talk about things that I'm scared of. And, um, but now I feel I actually feel like I can be completely honest now, which is almost scary because you always want something in your back pocket that you're holding on to, to be like, this is my truth. But I'm kind of just, I just, I'm not, there's nothing shameful about my, my life anymore. And if there is, it's okay. Well, what happened to you during the pandemic? The comedy clubs closed. You had to spend a lot of time with yourself. Did you really start spending too much time with yourself and things started creeping up on you what happened yeah it was well i was living in new york and la back and forth so busy all the time and i was getting ready to kind of maybe go to rehab or something because i was just exhausted i was about to have a show on e not the one i'm having now the one i have now is a reality show this was going to be a talk show and i wasn't it was coming out in may i had wasn't even I wasn't ready for it. It was going. It was t- 10 episodes. I didn't have t- enough time with my tour and my podcast and my radio show to even commit to making this show good. So I was so nervous about that. And I remember begging, please, can something just take me out of this? Like I wanted to collapse from a d- exhaustion, but I, it wasn't happening. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, thank God, I don't have to do that. But then I had nowhere to, I was, I already knew I, I didn't want to be alone. I had my own apartment, but I just said, I'm just going to go hang out in St. Louis with my parents and stay at their place. What a great opportunity to just hang out with them. And that turned into 10 months. I just never wanted to leave because I was too uh, scared of being alone. And also I had no, it made me realize like, this is when I could really use a husband or a partner or it was during a worldwide pandemic where I don't want to be alone and I want comfort. I want to touch someone. And I felt, I looked at, I remember one morning was the day it dawned on me. I woke up and I looked in my bed. I had been eating, binging all night in bed. And I looked and I was like, 
there's never going to be a man in your bed or whatever you want in your bed because there's rappers in your bed and you have to wake up every morning and collect all these. It's like that was the moment I was like, this this is why I'm living with my parents at 35. When I have the money to live on my own, this is it. This eating This eating issue you have, you finally need to look at it. It's so loud. You can't distract yourself from it anymore. And that's when I just decided to give up and just do what someone else told me to do, which is not easy. <laughs> you and I were talking the other day and I said, I don't have the need to be loved by strangers. And you were saying, yeah. oh my God, really? Because I do. <laughs> yes. Do you have the need for people to know you're successful? Because you do a lot of things that people probably don't know. You're right, Dr. Phil. I do so much um, all the time, but I'm not like someone who brags about it or who posts about it like I sometimes look at my life and I'm like god you did so much stuff this week so many cool tv things met so many people why aren't you posting about this to share it I think I do it because I need it's for my parents kind of I want them to be proud of me I'm always telling my my parents are kind of like my my the ones that I brag to th- about to to about these things I want them to be proud of me I think getting on tv was a way to get their attention in a way that I maybe didn't feel I got as a child I always my mom watched TV a lot, so I was like, "Okay, I'll just I'll just get up there to get you to like care about what's going on in my life, like you do the housewives." So I think that was a, a reason for it. Well, that's not unhealthy, though. The fact that yeah. the people in our lives that we wanted to be proud of us is not unhealthy. Yeah. Okay, good. You don't think it is, do you? No, I just feel like I guess there's a part of me of of what would I be bringing to the table? I don't have kids. My sister has kids. Like this is my thing and that I got to keep it coming and and but I also they're so talented and funny that it was the greatest thing that I could do was creating this reality show that was born of me living at home and being at my parents and being like what do what am I going to do next and I'm like these these guys are hilarious I was putting them on my Instagram and everyone was like more EJ and Julie so I'm so grateful now that I am in a position where I was like okay let's do a show and, and E bought it and now my parents are going to get to my dad's always been a performer and never really pursued it because of just wanting to be able to support a family and not take on this risky business but now he's going to be people are going to see how talented he is it's very exciting you did eight episodes right yes yes so describe um, it and tell people what they're going to see welcome home Nikki Glazer, which is um about me moving back home to St. Louis and it's it's not going to be filled with the kind of maybe drama that you want and the, the you know the fighting and the the those explosive episodes but you're going to get real honesty and just a family that loves each other that is uh figuring out how to communicate and uh me who is trying to begin a relationship again with her ex-boyfriend who also moved back to St. Louis at the same time so it's very interesting that this show kind of, it wasn't something I orchestrated. It really, the camera showed up and I said, okay, well, this is my life right now. This isn't kind of the show I pitched, but this is what's going on with me right now. Okay. And and I really, I made it, I did everything I could to make it as an honest representation of my life as possible. So what you're seeing is really my life and the state of my room and everything else. <laughs> you were telling me the other day, you said, you thought, okay, I need to clean up my room. And you thought, nope, not no. going to do it. Now, I think that so much of my lack of self-esteem as a child, I was obsessed with pop culture, obsessed with celebrities. I would have done someone's celebrities could have done such a service for me if they would have just shown their imperfections a little bit more. And so I feel it is my duty to show it like it really is, because there's nothing that makes you feel better than seeing someone's bathroom that's a mess that you might project some perfection onto and go, well, at least I'm not that. Or, oh my gosh, she does that too. I'm just trying to give the gift that I really could have used as a young girl who just judged myself so harshly and continue to do so. Um, And so it was really an experiment in me trying to put myself out there in a way that might make me cringe, you know, at times being like, oh, come on, you you couldn't have put on a different, you couldn't have put on some under eye concealer there. But it's, it's a test uh, of me being okay with myself and me being okay that people might not be okay with the p- person I'm putting out there. But I love her. She's trying her best. And she means well. And I, I believe that for myself now. I don't have this sneaking suspicion that I'm a bad person like I always had before. <laughs> I think I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty well intentioned. <laughs> So if you had to say 
what are the five things you're most proud of yourself about you as a person? What would you say? Oh, I would definitely say um, spreading authenticity, uh, being really and and helping my podcast fans really get honest about their selves. I would say conquering my eating disorder, being being very generous with my uh, opportunities and wealth that I have been so lucky to have, and um, just being uh, and 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 being curious and being able to be wrong. I think as comedians, a lot of times we just you know, nobody can take a joke. I'm just joking. And I think that I, I like that I have gotten to a place where I can embrace that I get it wrong a lot of times. Like I am not giving Ted talks. Like I'm not presenting facts and I'm okay if someone gets offended by something I say, cause I look to learn and, and to become a better person and, and make mistakes. And I just hope that, you know, I can be forgiven for those and not canceled and just like, you know, so I think that my biggest accomplishment though is, uh, really overcoming my my mental issues of like my low self-esteem and and being open to new tools but honestly my eating disorder getting that being two years over it'll be two years uh, april 26 of not starving myself not uh binging not exercising for to burn calories do being able to say that is I mean, I suffered with an eating disorder for 20 years and never once went a, a week without starving myself or overeating to the point where I was sick. And so now that I, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And so I think that's my biggest accomplishment because it's opened up a whole new world to me just in these past two years of that. And I think, um, yeah, that's that's probably been my biggest one. And it's not one I really talk about that much because it's so personal and so messy and but um, I just I like to say that because I always thought when I would hear people talk about recovering from eating stuff like, no, theirs is recoverable. Mine's not. I'm special. And I'm telling you, if anyone out there is struggling with any kind of eating issues, it you can recover because you're not you are special, but you're not special. You're not uniquely terminal like of you're the one that's not going to get cured. You can there's it, it's possible. Charlemagne the God has also just written a book called Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me, and it's been out for just a little while. He is already a New York Times bestselling author. His first book was Black Privilege, and his current book is Shook One. Yes, sir. And guys, I've read this book. In fact, I, I marked stuff up. And yeah, it looks like a church Bible the way know, you got it marked up. And I've got things marked <laughs> all through it. And I got to tell you, I had him on my show. One of the things he said is that he's not an expert. He's just got life experience. But let me tell you, he's used that life experience in a very insightful way. So if you haven't read Shook One, I stand by this book. I recommend it. I think that it is insightful. I think it is inspirational. And I think you will find things in here that will change the way you approach the challenges in your life. And I think you will bitch less and whine less after you read it uh, <laughs> because seriously, you had chances to go lay down and whine about shit, or you could just get up and go do something about it. And you got up and did something about it. Yeah. That's why I say, you know, you got to use that fear as fuel. You got to use that anxiety as fuel. Like I had every reason to just give it up, cash it in. But those options of, you know, being broke, sitting under the tree, you know, being in prison, are being dead really scared me. And like when I started to, to to get in a lot of trouble and you know, some of those experiences started to happen to me, my father would always say that if you don't change your your lifestyle, you know, you're gonna end up in one of those three places. So yeah. I was shook to death. You know how they always say smart people learn from their own mistakes, wise people learn from the mistakes of others. I made some mistakes myself, but I saw some of those mistakes really affecting people to the point where I was like, yo, my father was absolutely right. That's why the best advice I can give kids, man, is listen to your eldest. Because everything that we could possibly think to do, they've already done. Tell me about anxiety for you. You said you didn't know anxiety was a mm -hmm. thing. You didn't know it was a mental condition, mm -hmm. an emotional condition that was treatment worthy. Now that you know, now that you figured it out, looking back, when did it start for you? When was the first time you had something that would qualify? When I was like 10. Really? It was, yeah, it was Hurricane Hugo in, in uh, Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Hurricane Hugo was a Category 5 that hit South Carolina. And at the time we were living in a single wide trailer. 
And I remember everybody on our dirt road had to evacuate. We all went to this local elementary school called Whitesville Elementary School. And it was just like listening to all the panic from the adults and, you know, them saying things like they don't know if their trailer's going to be there tomorrow or the house not going to be there or we might not make it through the night. Like, I remember that same feeling, heart beating crazy, shortness of breath, like just, just you know, man, what's, what's going to happen, you know? And, and that, that wasn't even an irrational fear. That was actual fear, yeah. fear, yeah. you know? So that's the first time I remember having it. But I mean, I've had it so much throughout my life, man. And it's so weird because I think about times where I used to hide in the woods or hide in the cornfield away from people just because I didn't want to see certain individuals because I was having such bad panic attacks, you know? Or sometimes, like, I would be having a panic attack and want to be left alone and know that, like, one of my neighbors might come walking down the road. I might see them from a distance and dart off in the cornfield just to, like, get away from them. So I've, I've been having panic attacks my whole life just not knowing what they were. Do you know what triggers it? Have you learned what triggers are? It's weird, man, because I'm like, I don't know what the word for this is, but it's sort of like being a mental hypochondriac. I'm a hypochondriac, period. Really? But, but yeah, but I'm a mental hypochondriac as well because I'm the type of person to see something on the news, like some rare disease, and think that I'm going to get it. You know, I remember it's a rapper named Pimp C. He died uh, December 4th of like 2007, and they just found him dead in a hotel room, and nobody knew what he had died for originally. So, and some people were saying it was a heart attack. So I remember that whole day convincing myself that I was going to die of a heart attack that day. Like I could not shake that out of my head so much so that I went to the emergency room that night, got to the emergency room. Doctor tells me what he always tells me. Like, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Your heart is fine. Did you have a panic attack? I'm like a panic attack. I don't, I don't have no panic attack. Do you have anxiety? No, I don't have any, I don't have anxiety. Did you have some caffeine, energy drink? I'm like, oh, I drank a Red Bull that day. So I could always point to something else to deflect mm -hmm. from the fact that, no, you just have anxiety, whether it was stress or an energy drink. Like, no, like you have anxiety. And I had to, I had to get a handle on that. So I don't necessarily know what causes it because it could be little things. Like I, I had a panic attack a couple of weeks ago because my co-host was reporting a story about human trafficking. And she was talking about these little girls getting... Uh, found in Michigan and then I looked on social media and saw like some human trafficking going on in Virginia and automatically just start thinking about my 10 year old daughter you know and like like I'm trying to push all of that out of my head because I feel like I feel like your thoughts really do become things and like I said the only reason I'm here right now is because I believed I could be here so the things I want to happen in my life I constantly think about the things I don't want to happen I don't think about it at all so what causes the panic attacks for me is when these, those negative thoughts keep popping in your head, popping in your head, popping in your head, and then if it does manifest itself, God forbid, I feel like I created that, you know? The first book I wrote was called Life Strategies. I wrote about the 10 laws of life, and one of them is what I fear I create. Mm. It's like with athletes. Mm. If they fear they're going to hurt their knee because they've come back too soon, they'll run funny, they'll favor it, they'll create the very thing they're afraid of. Yeah. And thoughts are so powerful because we speak at 125 words a minute, but we think at 1,200 to 1,400 words a minute. It's like a kid going through the cafeteria, some eighth grade girl, and she hears some girls say, uh, she's fat, she's got a fat ass or whatever. They may only say that one time, but then she starts repeating it, oh, and she's repeating man. it at 1,200 words a minute, yeah. 10 hours a day. Yeah. Think how many times she says that to herself. She takes over for the bully, internalizes it, and destroys her self-esteem yeah. because she thinks so fast, it just becomes an automatic thought. Yeah. Now, you know, so like that's what I can't do it anymore because my daughter's in fifth grade, but I used to pop up at my daughter's daycare all the time, pop up at her school all the time. I mean, now you can't because you just can't walk up in the school anymore because yeah. she's in fifth grade. But I used to have to do that for me yeah, just to relieve my, my sure stress. okay? Yeah, that's it. Simple as that. Because, I mean, it, it can be little things. I can watch a video of a, 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 a woman in daycare beating up on a child. You know, you'd be like, yo, what the hell is wrong with these people? Yeah. So it's just like every now and then you just got to pop up and make sure everything's going to be okay. Like, that's, that's one reason I really don't like to stay anywhere. I'm flying out on the red eye tonight because I just want to get back home. You know, like I don't, I don't like to stay the night places. I just like to be home. And when my kids call me in the middle of the night, I want to be there. Yeah. 
a certain degree of vigilance. It's not a bad idea in this day and time. Oh, 100%. I mean, you can overdo it, but you got to remain vigilant. So what kind of therapy are you getting? What are they doing for your anxiety? What works for you? What works for me is um, exercises, you know, um, and I have a very sensible therapist who listens to all my stories and she listens with the intent to understand and not just reply. And what really made me really dig her was one day I just came in there and unloaded on her and she looked at me and she goes, "Woo," <laughs> you know? And I was like, a lot, it's a lot, right? And she was like, yeah. And she just kind of like sat there for a second and then just kind of like walked me through it, you know? And then she teaches me like just simple breathing exercises. Cause sometimes that's all I really need. Like I just need to talk myself off, off the ledge and, and figure out ways to keep those negative thoughts from repeating in my mind 1,200, 1,400 times a minute, like you yeah. said. Do you do anything physically? I got stress balls. I have stress balls. I work out three to four times a week. You know, I think about when I was young, I repeat daily affirmations to myself. You know, I used to always say, I love Jehovah God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I love Jehovah God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I love Jehovah God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Go away, Satan. Go away, Satan. Go away, Satan. And then when my panic attacks would get real intense, I would straight up say, fuck Satan. Fuck Satan, fuck Satan. Because my mentality was, in the Bible, they said, Job said, they told Job, curse God and die. So I said, if I curse Satan, I'll be blessed. So that's what I used to do. So it's just like repeating constant daily affirmations to myself, you know, praying, taking deep breaths, breathing, and really like call, like getting to the source of whatever it is, you know, the, whatever my anxiety is. The problem mm -hmm. sometimes is when the source of your anxiety is literally something that I saw on television. Yeah. Something I read in a magazine, something I heard in the radio, something I heard happen to somebody else. You know, I've I've had, you know, friends who's who my worst fear has has happened to them. You know, like you know the, the fear of losing your wife, not losing her like divorce, but like dying in like a yeah. car accident. You know what I'm saying? I've 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 re I recently had something like that happen, and it's like, man, you know, when when you hear that story, and then you don't have the words for your friend. You know what I'm saying? You don't have the words to tell your friend. And like, you're trying not to, you're, you, you're trying to think about your friend, but you're also not trying to think about this story. Cause when you think about that story, it makes you think about your own situation and something like that happening to, to your wife. So that's like the, the tricky part of like, just of how to deal with that kind of stuff, man. And that's something I'm trying to navigate now. When you say you're a hypochondriac, do you read about something or see something on TV? Is that what triggers that? Oh, 100%. I thought I was going to get Ebola. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I thought I was going to get SARS. You know, all that, any, any of that. All of that stuff. I, I thought that people, when, when, remember when they were sending the bombs, the pipe bombs, and they just were sending pipe bombs just now, but when they were sending the bombs in Austin, Texas, the random people. Yeah. Like, I'm the type of person that'll, like, literally last week when they were sending the pipe bombs, I pulled up to my house, and I just saw all these boxes on the porch. I'm circling the boxes. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> trying to see what the labels are. Then I'm like, oh, that's just Zara. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Then my wife's just ordering stuff. Yeah. But if you think you have a disease or you think that you've got some infection or something, what do you do about it? How does it paralyze you? Oh, I go to the doctor immediately. Like, my uh, my my doctor will tell you right now, like, she'll, like you cannot get another physical. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you're you're fine. I promise you, you're fine. Like, my, I had a friend die last year of of stomach cancer, you know? And I remember I visited him a, a week before he like really went bad and, and, and you know, he died. His name was Reggie Osei, Combat Jack. And he was just telling me all the symptoms. He was like, you know, my stomach started to get big and I thought it was because I wasn't eating right because I was doing so much drinking. And then I got sick and I went to the hospital. By the time he got to the hospital, it was stage four cancer. So I'm in my mind, I'm looking in the mirror like, yeah, my stomach getting a little big. Like, and I got a knot right here. I'm just making up stuff and I'm, Going to the doctor, and she's like, what are you talking about? Like, she's like, what are you talking about now? That's still going on, but you're in therapy. What are they doing about you thinking about that? It's just a process. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm talking my way through it. You know, she's talking me off the ledge in a lot of situations. Like, you know, she gives real simple advice. Like, you know, you, you do realize this is all in your mind. Like, you went to the doctor, right? I'm like, yeah. The doctor said you're fine, right? I'm like, yeah. So... What's the issue? And I'm like, I don't know. That's why I'm here yeah. talking to you yeah. now. So it's kind of like just rationalizing things in your brain. That's why, that's why I believe in like irrational anxiety 
and rational anxiety, you know, because yeah. I'm not on any medication. She hasn't put me on any medication. She just kind of like talks me through it and, and gives me ex breathing exercises. Do you ever get nervous when you're getting ready to do an appearance? Yes, I do. Like in front of an audience or something? Yes, but I expect that. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say rational anxiety. Like when I come out on your show, I know I'm on live television. You yeah. know, I know that it's a bunch of people out there watching me. So yeah. I can't, you know, get myself in a Cindy Brady, Brady Bunch moment where the light comes on and I'm just yeah, sitting there at the camera frozen. Like, yo, it's sink or swim at this point. So I expect to have anxiety in those situations. But once you're out there, like when you were on my show, it wasn't 30, 45 seconds that you know how to read a room. Yeah. You immediately know this audience really likes you. They like us together. They're having yeah. fun with us having fun. Do you pick up on that and immediately get? Yeah, and it's therapeutic. You relax. Yeah, it's therapeutic for me in a way. You know, yeah. like like it's weird though because I'm weird. I, I I don't I don't like compliments, and and for whatever reason I'm used to to somebody telling me they hate me more than somebody telling me they like me. So even when you say the room is 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 cool and it's a good vibration, I do feel that energy, but I know I can't play to that crowd either. So what I really do in those situations is just be me. Like what I've learned to do in my life is live my truth. So nobody can use my truth against me. The easiest thing in the world for me to do is be myself. If I try to be anything else, I'm going to lose every single time. Does that boil down to get them before they get me? No. I just don't feel like you should play to the room because I feel like you'll hear those, you'll hear those cheers. And then when you say something and don't hear the cheers, you'll be questioning yourself like, oh my God, did I just say something stupid? Like, did that suck? Oh, they, they think I'm trash now. Oh, so you would ride it up and down. That's all. If I, you got sensitive to it. Yeah. I'm, so, so for me, I'm just out there telling my story, telling my experience. You ask me a question, I'm answering it. However the crowd reacts is how they react. Like, I can't play to the crowd and try to get a laugh from the crowd. I try to get a awe oh, from the crowd or any of that. Like, yeah. I just got to tell no, my no. story. Yeah. But you understand when when you are being truthful and you are being authentic, you know that plays. Oh, absolutely. You know, people know the truth when they hear it. I, I feel like the universe responds to honest people. That's yeah. why I'm always truth, truthful, even whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether it's ugly. That's why I have no problem sharing any experiences from my life, you yeah. know, because I just feel like, like, like I said earlier, like I feel like you, you go through certain things because, you know, God is working through you. He's making you go through certain things so he can work through you to reach other people. Dr. Michelle Borba, internationally renowned educator, recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthening children's character, their resilience, and reducing peer cruelty. The impact of this school closure that we've had, this remote learning that we defaulted to, is going to be impacting for years to come if we don't do something to close the gap. How do we do that? Number one is resilience is the answer to it. But I think a big mistake that parents think is there's only a set window. It's too late. Or it started when he was three. It's not too late for any of us or the entire counseling industry would go out of business. So first, we add it to the plate. And second of all, we start chunking this whole thing called resilience. When I was writing Thrivers, my goal was to look at seven traits that are highly correlated to success. Not every kid needs all seven of those. Can you tell us the seven? Oh, sure. It starts with confidence. Confidence is knowing your strengths and let's help our kid focus more on their strengths as opposed to their weaknesses. 77% of the time, we try to fix the kid as opposed to help them learn where you're going with your strengths. You know, the simplest thing that Emmy Warner discovered, many of the children who really had extreme adversity in their life had a hobby. And the hobby, I didn't make a difference. It was uh, guitar or books or hiking. They would go to that to decompress. Dr. Phil, when I was interviewing kids and said, what's your hobby? Many of them looked at me absolutely dumbfounded. Who's got time for a hobby? So that's number one. We've got to start with that. Maybe we start being talent scouts. We walk around the house and we look at tuning into what our kids are good at as opposed to what their weakness are and start pointing that way. Another one would be empathy. We need social competence. We know that many children who are resilient have ability to connect with others. Now we've got loneliness factors and, and social competence and empathy is made up of social skills. So if that's the part that's low, then let's start focusing in on how to help our kids get along. The third one is every kid in the world needs. 
self-control coping strategies, how to get rid of that stress so it doesn't become so darn unhealthy. There's at least 30 strategies in the self-control strategies, that chapter on how to help them. So you find one. You know, here's another thing that kids said, Dr. Phil. They said, I know you're teaching us self-control strategies, but it's not like a one-time course in a health unit. You got to give us a repertoire of stuff that we can actually do in the here and now. Then we got to practice it. Like on the show, I was teaching Kira the one-two breathing, which is so simple. As soon as the stress comes in, when you start identifying what your stress signs are, you take the slow, deep breath from real deep in your abdomen, like you're riding up an elevator, keep focusing on the breath, hold it, then slowly let it out. The exhale is twice as long as the inhale. Kids said that really works, but unless you help us practice and practice and practice and practice when we're calm... It doesn't kick in. What Dr. Bohr was talking about here, a one to two ratio of inhale and exhale, is not as simple as it sounds. It has to do all the way to the cellular level of the exchange of oxygen and calming yourself down. So you can hear something like that and go, oh, yeah, you had some lady on there talking about breathe slow. No. No, she's talking about regulating yourself. It's almost meditative. It causes you to really slow down and exercise control in the face of stress, which, again, as I said earlier, you observe yourself doing. And that's just one of several things that she talks about in this chapter on self-control. I said she wasn't a theoretician, that she puts verbs in her sentences This chapter on self-control puts your child back in command of their ship. And I can't tell you how important role-playing is. If you take these things in her self-control chapter and you actually role-play this with your children so they practice it and do it, this can be an absolute game-changer. Oh, Thank you, because you also nailed something else on that one that I think we're doing wrong as parents. We tell our kids these things instead of showing them. Any skill is better if you show it, not tell it, then you do it over and over again. With little kids, go teach the teddy bear. For bigger kids, go teach someone else. For bigger kids, bigger when teens, they roll their eyes at you and I'm going, come on. The most elite forces in the world called Navy SEALs. This is what they do. You can do this. All you need to do is keep practicing and practicing. The exhale has got to be twice as long as the inhale. Yeah, And these Navy SEALs, they don't do it till they get it right. They do it till they can't get it wrong because their life depends on it. There you go. That's it. I think the other thing with parents when they're stressed is, oh my gosh, how am I going to feed that in? I got so much other things to do. Just if you take one thing like one, two breathing and you weave that in one or two minutes a day and you do it for a month, that alone is going to help your child learn a skill they're going to use the rest of their life. There's dozens of ideas in there. Don't do them all or your kid will never let you read another book. Find what works for your family and you keep working and working and working on it because your new goal as a mom or a dad is to help your your child learn to cope without you. That's how they're going to get through a very uncertain world. They're going to need a new skill set. Your next one is integrity. Talk about that a little bit. Well, fascinating enough is that integrity is that piece that's that strong moral code and compass. And people go, what that have to do with resilience? There's a whole bunch of different kinds of challenges. Some kinds of challenges are the stress challenges, but integrity would be the challenge like the peer pressure challenge. Is that right? Is that wrong? When we look at kids who get over that hump, They have you as the parent planting very strongly in them what our beliefs are in this family. And that means it's a lot and lot of conversations. Dr. Phil, the easiest thing I've ever seen, there was an incredible girl named Mia Dunn. Every high school teacher said, would you go figure out how that kid came to be such a kid with amazing integrity? So I pulled her aside. She was a senior in a Florida upscale school. And I said, okay, Mia. Every single high school teacher is asking me to find out how you got the integrity, how'd you do it? She laughed and she said, oh, it was how I was raised. I said, okay, how were you raised? She said, oh, I remember when I was six, my parents called us, my two brothers and me into the family room. There was all this chart paper and marking pen. My dad said, sit down. 
We're going to figure out what kind of family we want to be remembered for. So we're going to brainstorm kinds of words. Mom's going to write them all down. I don't care what the words are, respectful, responsible, honest, whatever. We're going to write them all down and then we're going to vote. At the end of, I don't know how many little bits of time, mom ran out of room on the mark on the all of the chart paper and dad said, let's vote. And we all voted for honest. I said, okay, easy. So how'd you remember it? She laughed and she said, it was impossible not to. My mother must've said it 50 times a day. Remember, we're the honest duns. She dropped us off at school. Hey, remember the honest duns. We'd be reading a book. Those guys were honest duns. They said it so much, we became it. Oh, I love that quote because that's how you instill integrity. You got to be the value system for your kids. Stand up and start embedding it in your child so they become what you want them to be. Yeah, it's so important that you have rituals and traditions in your family and they take pride in that where you just say, we just don't do that. We do this. And that's so important for their identity. So important. Okay, next. Curiosity. Yes, I love curiosity. curiosity. That's that kid who thinks out of the box with ideas and people. The easiest one on that one, when you go, what the heck does that have to do with resilience? It's not to raise a kid who's an Albert Einstein creative child, but it's a child who realizes that when they're confronted with a problem, there's no problem so great that can't be solved. And that's what you're looking for, for agency. The easiest way to do that from this moment on is when your child comes home or he's sitting there with a problem, don't solve it for him. Instead, what's bugging you, sweetie pie? Say it. And then you teach him the simplest thing that there is called brainstorming 101. Keep a poker face because some of the ideas they come up with are going to be off the chart. But what's one thing you could have done? What's another thing for a kid who goes, how long do I have to do it for one minute till the sand runs out? But if you keep brainstorming and then you're all done and you go, okay, now get rid of things that aren't safe, wise, or responsible. What's the one thing you're going to choose? Good. Now let's create the plan. What you're doing is creating agency. So when the child is faced with a real life problem, he's got it. And that's, again, what that thriver has. It's okay, mom. I can do it myself. Oh, there's your moment to get get a spa day, mom. I got it. Yeah, that's so important. Again, that's them observing themselves, figuring something out. And even if they're off the charts with some of them, that's so important. What we were talking about before of how we're preparing these kids in school, but it's perseverance. Yes, it's perseverance. Here's the problem, Dr. Phil, is that every parent wants the kid to persevere right this minute. And what I discovered is that of these seven traits, you got to have that self-control in order to have the buffer or self-confidence is really wonderful in order to help that kid persevere. In fact, the other thing I learned that was my aha moment is it isn't one trait or two traits, but you put any two together, they multiply the outcome. So it's like superpowers for a child. Self-control and perseverance, wonderful. Carol Dweck has got the greatest solution on perseverance. Stop praising them for the end product. What you get? Did you get the 100%? What's the grade? Instead, you make success in your house become a four-letter word, G-A-I-N. Yesterday, you were here, sweetie. You got 33 right. Tomorrow, you're going for 34. It's one step, one step, baby step. Success is always in steps. You never win the gold medal tomorrow. You win it in little teeny increments along the way. And, and that's the goal on perseverance. So wonderful on the science that tells us how to help our kids hang in there and not quit. The last one you mentioned is optimism, which is so important. You're watching a group of kids who have been every day for the last two years turning on a TV set and seeing how many people died today. Now you've got a live feeds of a horrific war. You've got images that are really impacting our kids. And many of them say, I just feel hopeless. I'm really worried about the world. I think this one is one of the easiest things from NYU that said, images that our kids see either elevate their empathy and their optimism, or they create doom and gloom. Okay, one of the easiest things you can do on that one, I think we don't do nearly enough. Look what the research says and apply it. Go to the back page of the newspaper every day. There's incredible, glorious stories about real kids doing wonderful stuff. Cut out the news, blow it up. Now you got another family meeting or an entertaining just dinner discussion. Did you hear about true story? Here, I love this one. The two kids in Ohio, they were so worried about the neighbor next door. 
Empathy 101 because she's 80. She's all by herself, mom. She's so lonely. Can't we do something? What can you do, sweetie? I love mommy. What can you do, kids? Can we drag our cellos to her porch and do a cello concert? Good idea, said mom. They drag their cellos, go to the porch, knock on the door. They social distance. They do a little cello concert. All the neighbors come out. They're crying. Mom's crying. She puts it on Facebook. It goes live. What happens is the virtual of all the rest of the children in the world look at it and go, I can do that too. You're elevating their heart. You're seeing tuba concerts in Sacramento, flute concerts in New York. We've got to show our kids the good stuff that's doable. Now they put it in their hearts. They've got the agency. That's what builds hope.